Welcome to Choosing Better, conversations about wacky ideas, economics, and the art of living well. How you doing, Tim? I'm doing great. It's good. It's good to be here again. It's good to be here again. Yeah, yeah. I enjoy our conversations. Oh yeah. What's not to enjoy? I mean, I, I suppose I can't think of anything. Well, good. Yeah. I was hoping you wouldn't think of anything. I couldn't think. I can't think of anything at all. It's good. So I'm I'm, ex- I'm excited to be here with you today. Today we're going to talk about. The liberal arts. The liberal arts. We've been living and breathing it. Living it is our it is our vocation. So I I, I figure at, you know at some point we had to talk about it. Swimming in the water. That's it. So all right, trivia. You ready? I'm ready. I just want to I just want to come out the gate. Boom. All oh, right. No. Here, here's my I have, I have a few questions for you. Okay. Okay. I'm gonna start out difficulty level easier. Oh, what is no. the oldest university in the United States? Williams and Mary. Oh, it, okay. I need you to. That could be an answer. It depends on on how you define the establishment. So, can you can you unpack that answer? Uh, oldest liberal arts institution. Why well, it is a liberal arts institution? I believe William Mary is the oldest charter, but not the oldest brick. Oh. Yeah. So they have the first charter by William and Mary, of course, King William and Queen Mary of England or the United Kingdom, but the oldest actual brick laid was not William Mary. In Virginia. Is it super famous? It is super famous. Is it Harvard? It is Harvard. Okay. It is Harvard. So Harvard typically is like the oldest university in the United States. But I think a lot of alum from William Mary are like, what about us? Our charter was signed first. Okay. Next one. So uh, Harvard is 16 something or other. Late 1600s. Okay. Pretty early. Pretty early. I mean, for the American continent, I feel like it's yeah, a yeah. pretty Free early. country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, second question. What is the oldest universe in the world that has always been operating? So it's been, so I'm, I mean, there might be an old university. I don't know what it might be, but the oldest university that's like continuously operating. All right. Give me a country. <laughs> maybe I did, actually, maybe I'll have you guess the country. That's even better. What country is it in? Uh, I would guess China. It's not. Is it in Asia? I, actually, I do wonder if maybe like the oldest university, maybe it's Chinese, but you, probably, you have a period of like forced closure. Sure. I mean, cultural revolution, for example, or various parts of Mao or who knows why. Are you warring, warring, warring states? Uh, it is not in Asia. Is it in Europe? It is in Europe. Hmm. Is it in Germany? It's not in Germany. I don't know. It's in Italy. Italy. Yeah. Italy. They, did they, they, they didn't seem that organized back then, right? Well, you know what's interesting is like, uh, well, actually, it's it's in the uh, 10, my gosh, maybe like 1088 perhaps. Okay. I and mean, we're talking old. University of Bologna. Bologna. All right. My Italian's quite poor. Well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have guessed it. You could yeah, give me well, many, many guesses. I know. There you go. There you go. Although I think Northern Italy, though, is kind of like the the like the first forms of capitalism. I've Russia's. seen many studies of social capital, and they use a lot of Italian maps. And the they northern sure part do. of Italy is the where nor- it's at. It's where it's at. Southern Italy, not so much. Nope, not so much. I mean, they've got they've got cool old buildings, but yeah. Northern Italy's got community. So you and I are quite invested in education. We are. Yeah. Given given. A good part of our lives to it, maybe all of it. Yeah. How many years have you have you been educated? Do you know? Oh my goodness! On the top of your head, Formal, uh, formally. Yeah, yeah. What what counts? Does preschool count? I don't know. I guess up to you. I wasn't counting preschool. Although, no. like, I grew up in Paw Paw, Michigan, and I don't. I never attended preschool. Did you count grade school? I do. Okay. I I, I, I did attend grade school. <laughs> Thirteen plus four plus four. What about actuarial exams? Oh, the hold, 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 hold. the conferences. Going to conferences for like, what we're exclusively for learning oh. how to pass these exams. Isn't that, that's interesting. To what extent do you count like professional conference mandatory education? I mean, if we're talking about liberal arts, it doesn't count. Absolutely. No, it does not count <laughs> does at all. Not count. That's too professional. Absolutely. No, too professional. 13. Yeah, exactly. 17. Also, you have to exclude, you have to wait your woodshop class, wait that out, right? You have to like actually discount that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah. So it's like. So maybe 21, 21 years? 20, what, 21 years. What are you at? Uh, 13, I think eight, no, go no, 13, four, uh, then four, so 17. Yeah. I'm at 22. Yeah. It's 21 and a half. I, I did, I did grad school in four and a half years. You did four and a half years? I did. Wow. Yes. Yeah, That's a humble flex. Bam. <laughs> Boom. No, I, uh, Man, I, I, I saw your shirt get a little tight right there. You know, that's right. That's right. I, big. It was cause I wanted to work at Wheaton. So, uh, my advisor was quite unhappy with me because, uh, I stopped earlier than was optimal. That, okay, actually, I think it's this is a time to tell a story. Can we hear the story? 
Um, sure. So, uh, so, so, so you're at University of Minnesota. I'm at the University of Minnesota. A friend sends me an email with a job ad for Wheaton College. It's for a macroeconomic hosting tenure track position. And, uh, you know, discipline specific positions don't pop up that often. So I thought, well, it's either now or never. So uh, I talked about, talked about it with my wife and we decided to give it a go. My advisor was very frustrated with me. He was interested in <laughs> R1 universities and uh, as prestigious as Wheaton is, it was not near the top of his list for desired institutions for me. So, uh, you know, he couldn't stop me from going, but he said he said he'd make it possible, but clearly state his displeasure. So, you know, there's a rumor that circulated about you. Yes. Yeah. There's a rumor that he wrote one of the most famous recommendation letters to be read by current living Wheaton College hiring committees. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, he's pretty brilliant. So basically he's like, if you hire Enoch, you will be destroying his career. He should be working at an R1 institution, which is basically like saying he's too good for you, but for some reason he wants to work there. Yeah. Don't hire him if you actually care. And uh, fortunately, we responded the way I hoped they would respond. And uh, I got the job and I'm super happy. I feel like either he loves you sincerely or he's really, or he's really bad at game theory. No, I think this, this is I think the he, optimal play. No, he told me he's like, I'm going to write a letter that's going to let you get the job if you want, but I'm not going to compromise my thoughts. Yeah, he's, he's a very he was a very very generous advisor. Yeah. Four and a half years in grad school. By the way, for those of you who who don't know, um, that's a, a quick PhD because also uh, the social sciences that you and I are both part of. Uh, you you did not have a master's beforehand, right? No, I did not. That's right. You die. So you went in straight out of well, not straight undergrad, but you went in with only a bachelor's degree. That's right. Yeah, a few years between undergrad and grad, but yeah, mm -hmm. I was the same way. Mm -hmm. I did mine in five, which is fast. I thought I five was pretty. I thought I was strong, but man, you're over there like watching me. Just you know, you know, five years. Just exactly five years. Right, well, go take your lap. <laughs> you're curling when I'm pressing over here. Just. <laughs> Gee right, whiz, right. that's amazing. You know, you know, actually, you know, I have a pretty similar, uh, I mean, not quite as, as bold as yours, but after I accept the Wheaton, the Wheaton College job, I had one of my advisors pulled me aside. Did I tell you this at all? You know? No. Yeah. One of my advisors pulled me aside. So I still had two more years of funding. How many, how much more do you have? I mean, there's not a clear limit every year. You kind of apply for it again. I think you okay. could get to seven pretty easy. And then after that. Okay. Okay. Yeah, we had like a guaranteed six for everyone in my program, and I had an additional year for a fellowship. Okay. So I had two years of funding, and I had this. One of my advisors pulled me aside. She said, "What are you doing?" So what do you mean? She said, "I feel like Wheaton College is a dead end for you." And I, I said, "That's very kind of you. It's very loving of you. I feel very affirmed." I said, "But you know, your dead end is my final destination." That's right. If it's a final destination, yeah, it's okay. Exactly. And actually, you know what? Cul-de-sacs are a great place to raise families. Yeah, and she really softened. She just went, "Oh." Oh, I didn't know that. I thought you were just being stupid. <laughs> I said, I said no. She's like, and I, 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 I could tell, like, oh, like you, you felt duty bound to make sure I didn't make a bad decision. Yeah. It, it, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's really helpful to understand the motivation of somebody. It is actually, and also, I felt very loved by her. I really did, awesome. and also very affirmed. Yeah, yeah. very much yeah, yeah. so. Well, great. That's great. Yeah. So here we are, though. We are, we are at a liberal arts institution. We are. And so, actually, why does that mean? If you help explain this a little bit, uh, we're a dead end. Why, 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 why are we a dead end for someone who's at a major research institution? You know, I thought you were going to ask me to define the liberal arts or oh, but why we're, why we're a dead end. We can define it through, I don't know, conversing about what, you know, what we're doing here. But so, I, I mean, I think it might, it might be kind of connected to the economics profession. So there is kind of a shift from, I think it's really tied to what is the end of education itself and what are we after? Yeah. And if it's to develop the whole person to make uh, virtuous citizens, then you have one way of doing that. If it's to expand the horizon of all human knowledge, then the best way to do that is clearly to specialize. Like you cannot have people wasting their time learning a bit of everything if they're ever going to plumb real deep on one topic. Yeah. And so there's a shift to realize, hey, it, it, there's a change, it, clear change in like the collective goal of higher education that was like, we want to expand knowledge period. And we're not in, as interested in like the formation of the individual. Mm -hmm. We're more interested in the collection of knowledge at the command of humanity. And that shift caused the liberal arts to start, I think, to decline. And then the second thing was 
uh, a shift in kind of, I think that another economics problem is that we, we substituted. So here, let me tell a story going Please. on for too long. I feel like, no, I'm I like, no stories are always great. All right. So and this is a topic that I think we've brought up before, but, um, Hayek has this idea that we, when we like to all talk about the common good, um, the problem is, is when we get to the details of the common good, we don't agree. And so I think a good insight of his is that maybe by relaxing constraints, we can all achieve more of our own individual understanding of what is good, what is worthy of pursuit. But in doing that, you get a practical shift, which is instead of saying like, I'm pursuing Christ in his kingdom, or I'm pursuing trying to create a more virtuous society, we start to say, well, the lowest common denominator that we all have in common that will help us all achieve our ends is to relax constraints, which is most easily observed through increasing GDP per capita. And when you have that, uh, I think along the way, somewhere along the way, we lost sight of the idea that there were these more important reasons for living, or at least they weren't quantifiable and mm -hmm. easily put into graphs and charts. And so a lot of individual imaginations kind of did what your teacher was afraid you were doing and started pursuing something that had always been a means as an end. Like, how can I increase my own or my child's earning potential rather than saying, how can I help my children become the fullest version of humanity, the most complete, uh, virtuous or whole human being that they can be. And that's a big shift. That's a big shift. Actually, there's so much to unpack there. There's a lot okay, start unpacking. Start no, unpacking. I, I think first off, okay, going back to you for your story, you brought up like specialization as one of the death nails of liberal arts. I think that's right. Yeah. And uh, I think that actually is right. Because like, because it is, it is perceived at least to be less useful to be a person of broad knowledge. So if you know a little bit about everything, mm -hmm. it's hard for you to carve out a space for yourself than if you know a lot about one thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And it's kind of an insight. I mean, I, I do think that some of the blame can be cast, maybe a lot of the blame can be cast on my profession. There's an insight that if you have, we all are good at, we don't have to be good at everything. The way we help one another is by specializing in one thing, mm -hmm. exercising our comparative advantage, and then we get all the other benefits by relying on the rest of the community to produce all the things that we didn't get good at producing, which uh, focuses us on specializing on something narrow rather than focusing on expanding our understanding of ourselves as human beings. You know, it's interesting because I want to ask you, actually, this is not what I was planning on doing, but let's just go for it. All right. <clears throat> just your own reaction. So when someone asks you a question about macroeconomics mm -hmm. and they say, hey, I have a question about this thing. Maybe it's like an interest rate they obs they're observing or maybe it's about right now like the debt ceiling. So as we're recording, the United States is still negotiating uh, the debt again. ceiling. Yep. Again, yeah. You probably feel pretty confident to converse with that. I'm happy to talk about it, although yeah. it's not the thing I'm most interested in talking about. Yeah, okay. But if someone though all of a sudden reframes that and they preface their question with, because you're an expert, does it make you feel uncomfortable? Or does, it, does it make you feel good? Uh, uncomfortable. Yeah, me too. Which is actually interesting because like, like, all right, so on macroeconomics, that is your, well, it's still pretty broad. But for the purposes of like general humanity, mm -hmm. <laughs> that is your narrow area, mm -hmm. right? That's right. Now within macroeconomics, you're more focused on? Well, I've kind of veered away from I macroeconomics, know, yeah. but business cycles was where I was yeah. focused. So you feel more comfortable speaking about business cycles. That's right. Um, but if someone that prefaces that they say, like as an expert, in other words, they're actually like now identifying what is presumably the PhD training that you would be the person who's specialized in a very narrow way, deep on one topic, but actually saying it out loud, does that kind of make you feel a little bit uncomfortable? I think that... Uh... God made the world in an incredibly vast and complex way. And that there is a beauty that is so unfathomably deep that as you like plumb any depth, you're just astounded by how much more there is to observe. Yeah. So I actually think that there's a form of, at least in a lot of experiences of studying something more deeply, there's a profound realization of how much you do not know. And so to ever like, claim the title expert feels like a form of domination or completion of a, of a topic. And I don't know that, I don't know that I've ever experienced that or if I even believe that's possible. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I do think that like, I do think that many people feel this unease when someone actually gives them the title of what they're presumably seeking, which is like expert. Mm -hmm. 
And I think that's actually very natural, very normal. So, so why? Why? I don't know. I mean, I think you're probably right because it does actually have these assumptions that I've plumbed the depths. I know all there is to know. Uh, but I think, like, for example, like I will, I feel pretty confident. You know, if a student asks me questions about international relations, I feel, I feel pretty confident. And they, if they go even more in inter international political economy, I also feel confident. But the moment they actually say like, oh, like you're an expert in this, I, I immediately start to go, I start to hem and haw, honestly. I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, well. But I do think though that you are right. There's nothing, we can't ever know enough to actually claim to, to know everything. Um, but I think that the strength of the liberal arts, which we're both doing, and actually I've, I've become, I've, I've grown to embody it. Uh, it's almost, Tim it's almost Taylor, like, the liberal arts. <laughs> I don't mean that the way. The expert on the liberal yeah, arts. I don't mean that way. I meant more of like, it's become such a delightful thing. It's been great. I just love it so much. I don't want to leave it. It's, it's almost like in a, it's like a, it's like a narcotic. Oh my goodness. I'm like hooked on it. Uh, I remember my first time coming to Wheaton because like, you know, we, in, in our training, you're so siloed off. Like mm -hmm. everyone I was friends with was a political scientist. That's right. Like everybody. Lots so of economists. We had delightful conversations about politics. And actually you had an American political scientist speaking and somebody's focused on electoral systems. Somebody's focused, focused on civil wars and ethnic so much conflict. To, so, many, so many topics you could. Exactly. But then I thought that was pretty great. I liked that a lot. That was like, really fun. And then my, I think my, man, my first like month at Wheaton College, I was invited to a colleague's backyard. And I was just sitting there just reveling, listening to a conversation about like a David Brooks New York Times article. And there was like a, an art historian and there's a macroeconomist. I'm looking at him right now as you, Enoch. Wow. And there's a, there's a historian uh, who focused on like 20th century Europe and there's a poet. And I thought, wow, this is awesome. This is where it's at because everyone had their unique perspectives on the article. It was one conversation with many different notes and many different voices on the single conversation. And it enlightened so much more. And it made me realize that my perspective is only one perspective, not the perspective. And not some kind of like uniform perspective. That made me realize, oh, there's actually different ways of looking at this problem or this issue or this topic. And the whole is made stronger by the particularities. But I simultaneously realized I'm not an art historian. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so it made me realize both. Like It made me realize the thing I didn't know I needed, which is like a historical perspective, but also it made me realize my limitations. I mean, I have. frequently have the experience that I am out of my league on so many topics. Um, and I experienced that more frequently than when I was <clears> in my <throat> graduate program, being um, among such a like diversity of thinkers, like uh, uh, who people are, who are maybe experts on so many different topics. I realized, oh man, I don't really know that I have anything to contribute to this yeah. particular conversation. Yeah. I have sure. a question for you. Yep. Go Would ahead. you define the liberal arts or I don't need you to give an official definition because yeah. there's almost yeah. too, there's way too many. But what, what, when you say the liberal arts, can you define what you are thinking? So when I say the liberal arts, I'm thinking about a holistic education that is not focused on one particular discipline, what many people might even call a major, that is across disciplines. Um, and is moreover, the aim of the whole thing is to inquire and to understand and to ask questions um, and not necessarily learn how to do. So it's like not learning a practice or not learning necessarily like a profession. Nice. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really key. It's not learning a profession, but it's learning different ways of thinking across different disciplines. And it, I think if someone, therefore, I think if someone's not doing liberal arts, if they're going to a trade school mm -hmm. or if they're going to a business school mm -hmm. or if they're even going on, this is gonna be a little dicey, I think even if they're just learning how to play an instrument, uh, although oftentimes music performance is incorporated in liberal arts, I it's, I mean, it's, what's the it, quadrivium? It's part of the quadrivium, right? Oh, please go on. Oh, no, I mean, yeah. so the original, I think the, <clears throat> the original conception of the liberal arts was the trivium, which is grammar, rhetoric, and logic, yep. and then the quadrivium, which is math, or arithmetic, uh, geometry, astronomy, and music. But, but yeah, it does, it does feel in essence that there's this some sort of like this is the liberal arts is learning not for the sake of being able to do something but for its own exploration and its yes. own sake which actually isn't how i if i was to advertise liberal arts i think i would phrase it a different way i would define it as far as its objective mm -hmm. and i and i heard just the most compelling uh, explanation for for k-12 education um that made me really consider public education but they the I, the pitch was this essentially like public schools tell you that their goal is to make your kid career and college and or college ready 
they're ready for career college. And uh, this private school that was advertising itself said, the goal of our institution is to cultivate virtuous citizens. Yes. And that's like so mind-bogglingly different. Like the end is the formation of the person, not the ability to do a specific thing. The, I Yes. I... Well, I mean, here's the, here's a great discussion. It's like, okay, so okay, in those stated terms, these are very different things. In reality, I believe that this is all very messy. So, like, I do not think a public education K to twelve, even if they state their objectives, are to make you career or college ready. In other words, like performance or professional based ready, skill ready. I don't think they actually are capable of stripping for themselves citizen making. Like, sure, it's it's always happening. It's well, yeah. I mean, also, like, I don't think we would allow ourselves to do such a thing. So we are, we, so I actually, I, I, I says, on the K-12 side, our biggest fights are over, actually not the job skills, our biggest fights over like, what type of citizens are we making? So actually our biggest fights effectively in society over like, what is our view of the good, as you just talked about? What is our particularity view of the good and what is the good life? And how are we actually putting that in a curriculum to teach the students? So I think even schools that claim to say that they are profession ready are still doing virtuous citizen formation. Um, and schools like ours, for example, that claim to be doing only, uh, or the objective is citizen formation slash virtue formation. Like, you know, what understand what the good life is, cultivating virtue, cultivating these ideas, like what do you contemplate? How do you think? How do you behave, right? It's all these different things. Uh, they still pursue professions and they still want to say that they are career ready. No, and I don't think one is bad and one is good. I think, you you know, someday most of us will need to find a job and work that job and yeah. to have particular skills that are useful are admirable things to do. But, but, uh, I find it very, very compelling to say like the goal of education is so much more than just learning a specific task. So there's a place for learning those tasks. And if, we, if a liberal arts institution doesn't want to be that particular place, I think then there might be a place for doing like both things to going to a, a boot camp for learning, Excel or learning SAS or, or some particular program or ability or skill. Yeah. But I think there is also a place to say like, what is it to be human? Like, what is my life about? And, and how do I live in a worthy manner? And like, to say, like, if I think, what do I want for my child? I want my child to be a good human being. I want them to be able to provide for themselves and mm -hmm. their family. But like, if they're a bad human being and can provide for themselves, that's far worse than if they're like fundamentally a good human being and have more challenge providing for themselves. If I'm saying like, where do I put that weight? I don't think that's the only definition of liberal arts. Like I think a lot of people would just say liberal arts is this mess of a whole bunch of different topics that we study. And if you get like a, a broad enough exposure, then you've done the liberal arts. Yes. I think people actually would, would effectively say that that's what it is. That's right. Well, as opposed to the objective of like, what are we trying to do? And I, I but I think though, going to your point earlier about like, how we've stripped down this view of of asking what is the what what is the goal what is the good life, the fact that we've actually made it like well we disagree on the on the on the common good and therefore we let the individual decide his or her own common good that does actually mean it's really difficult for an institution because in order to do liberal arts you actually have to be a little bit centralized right they have an institution that exists like a college that does this the college must be able to boldly ask the question what is the good life not as not not what is a good life for the individual. But what I, is the good life? I'm going to disagree with you. But, uh, please. I think that the, the institution has to be focused on the question, what mm -hmm. is the good life? But they don't have to answer the question for you. And in fact, I think the deepest uh, transformation happens when it's your own answer to the question. So they can say like, here are models that people have followed and, and have captivated the minds and hearts of like generations or societies. And here's like four different models. And we are pursuing a deeper understanding of what is the good life. But I don't even think as a teacher, I have to have the corner on the answer to that question. Yeah, I, 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 okay, I understand what you're saying. Let me ask this question though. Do you believe that there is such thing as the good life? Yeah, and I think there, I have my personal answer to the question and I think that to love my yeah. student, I need to share my understanding of the good life as long as I believe it. But I also think that it's, appropriate and true that I do not have like the corner on all knowledge that exists. Agreed. Agreed. But, but do you have the basic assumption though, that there actually is an objective answer? 
even if we're arriving at it from different, different ways and even if we're kind of dancing around it. And we, and so in other words, you might not have a core in the market of the knowledge on what it is. Do you think the like singular good life exists? I, I think that's a hard question. I mean, I think people have like different interests, different skills. Yep. So it depends on how particular you're delving. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I wouldn't want to go that, that particular to, okay. be, to be honest. But I do yeah. think that there are, that there are, that not everything is neutral. I think there are better lives and there are worse lives. And yes. there probably is, there probably is, I, I don't know that it's perfectly quant, like perfectly uh, ordered. Actually, but you did enough though. You did enough for me, Enoch, because the very fact you said that there's better lives and worse lives. And by the way, you don't mean material outcome. You mean like no. morally. Yes. Right? Yeah. I know what you meant. That itself is a bifurcating proposition in itself. The fact that you actually believe that means that you've already separated yourself out from many other university endeavors. But I don't think anyone believes in their heart that there are that all all <laughs> actions are equal. I can it's just that I, it's I, really popular to I say agree it with that you. way. I agree with you. But 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 in, in order for the liberal arts institution to actually thrive as we're as we're speaking right now, the institution has to actually embody publicly what you just said. That there are such things as worse and better lives. To have like the objective, the goal exactly. uh, that I stated as the liberal arts goal. I yes. don't think all liberal arts, I think there's plenty of liberal arts institutions who say the liberal arts are about asking broad questions or are about studying topics that aren't pre-professional or technical. Yes, or I would distinguish, actually, for, for, for the purpose of conversation, I would distinguish that with interdisciplinary. Okay. I do think that like, let's be, 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 I think that there's this thing called interdisciplinary which is also a very popular thing, yeah. which is what you just said. We're going to cross disciplines. We're going to ask these really big questions that not only economics can answer, economics can answer it with the help of art. Or like, right, that's interdisciplinary. What you're speaking about liberal arts is an actual, an objective function. For like the free human being, the person yeah. who's not a, who's not controlled in their actions, but has the yeah. ability to like pursue what is what is good, not the good life and materialistic well-being. Well, actually, this is helpful. Could you have a liberal arts institution, like a truly, not interdisciplinary, but truly liberal arts institution, could you have one exist that rejects an Aristotelian view of freedom, like a classical view of freedom? It's like, I freedom is freedom from my base desires, freedom from... Um, Freedom from my my carnal self. Okay, I think I think you should define a Aristotelian. I don't think everyone will know what an Aristotelian. Well, go for it. Okay. Well, actually, well, go for the, for the person what for the person how you and I both understand it as non philosophers. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> I may, may be, be really totally mistaken. Yes, that's right. Uh, in all of this, I feel like I feel like I've swum in a lot of these waters, but I don't feel like I've studied the waters in that's an right. academic. It's sense. not your native home. No, like yours, like my yeah. native home. Well, I don't know. I've lived here for a long time. Well, I meant it's like it's like, but your waters of economics are like a particular gulf of, of the of the ocean. But you've swam in many, many different different regions of the ocean. Right? Okay, so anyways, yeah. freedom. Yeah. I I think the best or like the most helpful illustration for me was thinking about a train. If an Aristotelian understanding is that the train is able to fulfill the purpose for which it was created, meaning a train is free when it's running on the tracks. Uh, and that it, and that it is not free when it's when it's run off the tracks and is stuck in the mud. But there's like a, a modern notion of freedom, which is that the train is able to do whatever it wants, regardless yeah. of what it was created for. Yes. Or maybe there's no such thing as what it was created for. It just is. I think that's actually key. There's, no, there's probably no such thing as what it was created for. Mm -hmm. the, the train is free if the train can go according to its own agency, its own will. Right. And right. I think we we're created in a certain way with particular things that lead to flourishing and with particular things that lead to yeah. languishing. Okay. So. Now we clarify that. Could a liberal arts institution exist that was built on, we're trying to pursue these questions of the good life, but we fundamentally reject such a thing as the train must be, the train is only fulfilling its purpose if it's on the tracks. The train can actually pursue its its own destiny. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to say that the good life, that, that there is an ordering of good and bad, that there are lives that are better and there's lives that are worse, even if we don't have a good conception or a full understanding of what those are. Yeah, we're lacking. We're you, must, you must believe that some are better than others. Uh, and therefore, yeah, that if you believe that one way to live is better than another way to live, freedom in a modern sense of the word is less relevant because it's like, okay, maybe you're allowed to do stuff that's gonna be harmful to yourself. And I think there's like a higher order of freedom. The higher order of freedom is like, to 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 cast a vision that's so compelling that people desire to follow it, 
even if they have other options open yeah. to them. They want to be on the tracks. Yes. They're saying like, I meant to be in the tracks and I have no desire to veer off the tracks. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's that's called alignment, I believe. <laughs> are, we, are we talking about AI again? Oh, no, yeah. Maybe in that direction. Okay, so <clears throat> liberal arts, I think, I think it's a pretty good distinction of what it is. And I'll, 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 maybe let me transition real quick to another trivia question. Oh, man, okay. Oh, what is the number one, well, at least the data source I found didn't seem very great. But according to the data source I found, which didn't seem very great, what is the number one major in America? The most common major. Is it business? It is business. What's number two? Psychology? Uh, no. Although one could study this and maybe want to go into some form of practice of psychology. Social science? Uh, hum- uh, health, health professions. Health professions, okay. Health professions, yeah. So both these majors, would you, would you say these are, major, these are liberal arts majors? No, I mean, not in any classical sense. But no. you, I, I think you could study those things and still be interested ultimately in yes. what is it to be human in the way we were created to be. Yeah, I actually agree with you. Which is funny because like, like being at a liberal arts institution, there is this sense of like when we add, for example, business major. So Wheaton College is a business major. When we add a business major, people feel really uncomfortable. So we're losing the liberal arts. I oftentimes be like, ah, I think it's fine. As long as you keep the, as you kind of, you, you're kind of bringing up the ethos of what we're trying to do. Like, you know, if we maintain our objective function as an institution, I'm not worried about having a pre-med major uh, or about having an engineering major or about having, for example, a business major. Yeah, so I think, I think, I think that this is an important distinction though, because I think our working definition that we've developed in the last half hour of the liberal arts isn't universally held. I think a lot of people yeah. would say the liberal arts is defined by the topics being studied, That's or right. even whether they are implementably so practical. Yes, here's my push. Yes, but here's my pushback back though. So, all right, I remember I was speaking with a friend, and we we're talking about this, and they're, they're like, I, they're like, I don't get worked up about business, business as a major, but it's not liberal arts. I said, well, why not? You know, let's actually, let's actually walk through this. So like, well, like, well, because business at the end of the day is not there's thinking. Yes, of course, there's thinking, but it's not really teaching you necessarily a way of thinking. It's teaching you a way of doing. Like accounting, they'd say, is a teaching way of doing. I'm like, well, uh, I'm not going to push back. Like, I think I could push back, but let me actually just like run with it for a little bit. I said, well, look at our conservatory down there. What about trombone? <laughs> and they were like, okay, but it was in the it was as you just articulated mm-hmm. in an antiquity view of the liberal arts. So therefore, it's okay. And, and I, maybe having certain kinds of experiences or having certain types of practical practical abilities is part of being a full human. Like if you thought of it what in that What could be, it, totally. But my pushback to them was just simply saying, oh, so tell me though, as long as we grandfather something in, we're fine. And they were like, well, okay, got me there. And I, and, and I bring us all up because like, I, I personally am not that bothered or worried about having a practical major. But I do know what you mean. A lot of people go, no, that, like the liberal arts itself is definitionally what was, def- what was 2000 years ago. <laughs> And therefore, that's what it is. And it's so unchanged. It's unchanged, which actually is really problematic as we develop new ways of thinking. For example, mm-hmm. like economics was not one of the original liberal arts disciplines, mm. right? No. Yeah. And should it be? I, I mean, I, 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 should it be in the liberal arts today? Of course. Of course. Actually, you know, it's funny. Is I think most, most people do say yes. They go, mm-hmm. oh, it's a way of thinking, right? And actually, it is. Economics is a way of thinking, not a way of doing. Mm-hmm. It really is. It's a, way of, it's a way of viewing the world through opportunity costs and scarcity. Right, trade-offs. It's a lens. It's a way for viewing the world, yeah. It's a way for viewing the world. It's not telling you what to look at. Which is very helpful. So I, I also want to say, too, that when it comes to liberal arts, um, it's funny because you know, I, I, I teach so many students that they've, they're have they here. They bought the product, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But they don't, I don't think they actually even know what it is. And so like, I start out with like a discipline circle. And I explain like these different ways of knowing. So like social science and how it's adjacent to like natural science, but also humanities and how they're different. But <clears throat> I also... Um, this, this is true for me. I think what you just articulated, it's your fear of yourself, not your fear, but how you view yourself. I'm like, sometimes I tell, I, I, I tell people who are getting formally educated, like the more, like the longer you're, you're in college, do you feel, do you sometimes feel more dumb? <laughs> and a lot of them are like, yes. Like, yes, like the more I'm here, the more stupid I feel. And I was like, well, that's because of like, you're learning what, you're learning now what you don't know. Mm-hmm. Right? So, you know, to borrow the, uh, the phrase from I think Donald Rumsfeld, right? There's no knowns, known unknowns, and unknown unknowns, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's things you know that you know. There's things that you know that you don't know. 
So for example, I know that I, I know that I don't know how a nuclear bomb actually is built. I, I just had a great, okay, wait, no, sorry. You, finished. No, no, you don't know, you don't know the. Yeah, but, but there's things I, there's things I don't know. I don't know. Yes. And, and you can't of course, talk about those. You can't talk about those. Exactly. Like, no, I think I'm thinking those. like a ball. Think of a ball, like a three-dimensional object. And as it expands, suppose that ball represents your body of knowledge. Yes. And the the things that you know that you don't know are only those things that touch the surface of the ball, the surface area of the ball. As the ball expands, the surface area expands, but the space outside of the ball is always just vast. Yeah. And so you're aware, you're touching more and more space, which is letting you know that there are more things that you don't know. That's right. Even yeah. as the ball expands. And actually, it's funny. Actually, I have also never do it too. Like, even if you're unaware of the or unknown unknowns, education and formal education, I think also helps you understand how much you know you don't know. Yeah. And that alone can be a very humbling thing and make one think that they're getting stupid. Right. They're like, oh my gosh, like the longer, the longer I'm in college, the more I don't know. And you're like, well, actually, you now know you don't know that. I, I always say like, you captured, you moved unknown unknown space into known unknown space. Which That's is a learning. It's learning. Actually, that's probably what a lot of learning is. So here's my question for you. We both obviously okay. thought these metaphors and these ideas yes, yes. about known knowns, known unknowns, and unknown unknowns. Do you think the liberal arts is better at capturing known unknown space, which is, I think, a really big part of knowledge, things you know you don't know, than other forms of education? Uh, okay, so you're talking not about exploration. You're talking about the student's outcome. Yeah, I, th I think yeah. certainly. Yeah, I think it gives you. It's like a very surface area intense place. If surface area is the un is like well, you're yeah, touching. Yeah, yeah, let me rephrase it. Let's let's suppose that I sat in your office and I am a dad, and I have my kids or my kids about ready to go to college, and I'm saying, hey, this is really important to me. It's really important to me that my child in the four years maximizes knowledge, known knowns and known unknowns. That's really important to me. And I say I'm debating right now between this liberal arts school or this. State Research University. Which one do you think would be would do better at expanding my daughter, and my sons? Well, I think that the I think the answer to the question is to, is maybe twofold. So, and I want you to answer the same question. I was actually going to ask you, like, pitch, give me your best argument why you'd want your child to attend a liberal arts institution, yeah. and your biggest critiques or why they sh maybe should not. So, I think the the honest answer to this parent is um, the most leverageable type of knowledge for the sake of like earning an income is going really deep on one topic and a liberal arts education in and of itself will not uh, help you as much as a, I think a, a pre-professional or a vocational uh, or learning a technical skill education because it will give you precisely the information you need to do one thing well but like it will not ex but you'll never be exposed to vast swaths of human knowledge or reflection on why we're here, what life is about, or what is a good life to start with. And I think that's like a huge loss. Uh, if you wanna know just the number of things you'll be exposed to and learn about, I think a liberal arts college will, will help. And I think another thing that it helps with is like this process of moving information from uh, unknown or navigating terrain that you haven't been very familiar with before. Mm -hmm. So it like it gets you into lots of little areas and hopefully if done well, cultivates a curiosity for those types of areas, which I think gives you a leg up when uh, the, the terrain itself changes. So like yeah. if 20 years from now, I was trained for a specific technical skill. I'm going to be better at that skill than somebody who, right out of the gate who wasn't. But as the terrain itself changes, I'm going to be less quick to adapt or know how to adapt on average compared to somebody who had the identical, who had the identical abilities, but was trained in a different way. Mm -hmm. I, I agree with you. I think that's right. I, <clears throat> I think just just answer my own question about, about the knowledge. Please I, do. Yeah, I do think actually liberal arts is more likely to. You are right. You're not going to get as deep in one thing, but I do think you're going to you're going to get. So I think some most radical, like there does seem to be there does seem to me to be diminishing marginal returns as you go deeper on a single thing. So I guess you learn more and more and more and more and more, but like you're getting a little bit lower rate of return. So there's like more of like okay, I knew that already, and now I'm learning a little more on top of that. Whereas when you're all of a sudden, for example, like like my training was very years 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 well, and the PhD program is, is narrow, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden I, I'm not realizing, oh my goodness, like I thought I really understood like 
politics and economics and markets. And, and all of a sudden, now I'm like, well, I, I, didn't ha I never had Aquinas at my disposal. I never had that in my toolbox, and now I do. And, and now, of course, compared to philosophy, they're like, you think you know Aquinas. <laughs> like, you think you know Aquinas? Yeah, scratching the surface. Exactly. But that scratch the surface was like just such a huge proportional gain. Mm -hmm. Like a massive proportional gain. Whereas I think right now, if I actually decide if the summer, I'm going to only read Aquinas. I'm going to actually get really big gains at first and they're going to actually diminish over time. So I do think that that's an argument for the liberal arts. But I do think, I mean, about the earning potential, that's fascinating. I mean, I do, I, I think like your mechanisms seem sound to me that if you, that if a person wants to actually just, just maximize their buying power, their income, that they will be able to do so if they just, become really focused on a particular set of skills. Uh, but I do think a person can do that on their own if they want to. Um, well, they could, you could learn a liberal arts education if you wanted to. I mean, most of us just aren't motivated to learn outside of community. Yes, well. I, I think this is actually, this is what I was, I was gonna come to. So all right, if you look at incomes across colleges, liberal arts schools on average have lower incomes for their graduates, right? Okay. Yeah. So like, I mean, sorry, the economists, the economists did this at least. Like, so okay. in 2016, the economists had a really big study and the economists took all universities and colleges in the United States, or at least the ones I could identify, over 1,000. And then they also have um, uh, average starting salaries mm -hmm. um, for, for, for the graduates. And so they ran a regression model. And the regression model, they basically found that uh, if you're in a metro area, it's positively correlated with higher incomes because people typically actually get a job near where they graduate from college. So if you get a, if you graduate from college in rural Kansas, you have a little bit lower job opportunity than if you graduate in sh Chicago because you have more jobs in Chicago. Sure. You can always move, but people don't move as much. Mm -hmm. uh, number two is the average SAT score for the class mattered a lot. So, okay, so the cohort effect. The co yes, or that could be also be a proxy for the quality of the school. So Harvard has a higher SAT score, okay, right? Or cohort effect. I don't know which one it is. Sure. <laughs> Unclear. Uh, and then three was liberal arts. Liberal arts actually has a negative coefficient. Okay. So liberal arts actually had a predicted okay. worst value. Uh, and In I, a very narrow sense of the word value, yeah. Exactly. Income, income and prime graduating. And I remember saying that and I'm like, I wonder if there's a lot of endogeneity here. So like the kind of student who goes to liberal arts just already might be inclined to not make as much money. Their goal in life isn't to maximize exactly. their earning. Yeah. They're not just there for professional training, right? They're just not there. Well, like, and that's, that's not what their goal is. Their goal is like, they're like, I, I, I have a job. I want a job. I might even actually, they might even go, I want my job to be something that gives me meaning and purpose, not something that necessarily gives me maximum income. Or maybe they're like, maybe it's a mixed goal. Maybe it's like, I want my job to have higher income and purpose, right? right? And I think everyone has these mixed goals. I think everyone is like, has some science skill of this, but it's maybe very possible that those who are going to liberal arts schools already are predisposed to drinking the liberal arts Kool-Aid, so to speak, right? Or it's also possible liberal arts education itself is transforming you. So I would say if a parent came to me and said, why should my child come to your school? I have really good arguments for, I think I'll share this in a second, but to jump ahead to your arguments against, I would, I would actually say this place Unlike, I would actually say every institution is going to transform your child. Because mm -hmm. I don't think we can actually escape the moral virtue citizen making of education. Okay. Education yeah. was foundationally built on that, upon that principle. That was the point of education, to form citizens. And I don't think we can, we can even escape that. But if you're a liberal arts school, you're at a place that is explicitly doing that, stated in the very objective function. Mm -hmm. and say, so I'd say, if your child goes to school, they will, on, they will be transformed. Or our desire is to intentionally transform towards yeah. a better, yes, towards exactly. deeper understanding. That is our explicit thing. goal to transform yeah. your child. Mm -hmm. Are you ready for that? <laughs> like, like, are you ready for that? Like, do you want that? Do you want what we're going to transform toward? And, and by the way, and all the schools are going to be doing that. But and which means too. So, for example, uh, like in the same study of in, in, in twenty sixteen. The Economist then published their top ten underperformers and their top ten overperformers. So, in other words, they they published school every they published the top ten schools in which the observed income of graduates was higher than predicted according to their model, mm -hmm. or and the observed ones were lower than predicted according to the model. Wheaton College was in the top ten worst performers. And I think it's so beautiful, right? I, I honestly I wasn't surprised. I felt like yeah, like duh. I mean, we, I mean first off, we were predicted to be higher because we were in, we were in Chicago metro area. Mm -hmm. Right, and we also have pretty high SAT scores for our students, mm -hmm. and but I mean, of course we're liberal arts that, that downgrade us. But we were like, I mean, at the time in 2016, I think we we're ten thousand dollars less than expectation. 
Now I'll tell you, every single school that outperformed, in other words, they were they they um, performed higher than expected. They all had one thing in common: they had a pharmaceutical school. Okay. And so Thomas then wrote like. We, we, we probably should, should put that in the model. That variable, clearly yeah. is omitted variable bias, bias, right? No, but like take take both of us. I think like I had a job that the trajectory was to earn way more than $10,000 more yeah. per year than I'm earning now. And I love my life. Like I chose to leave a career path that had a very high projected income to yeah. pursue something I thought was more meaningful. And like, I am so deeply satisfied. And I like pray, especially for my children, that they aren't like... Being able to provide for your family and provide for yourself is like an important aspect of the decision-making process. But if that's their end, if that's the only thing they think about is like my life outcome is measured by my annual income, then I have failed as a parent. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I agree with you. I think, and I think I'll, of course, I only observe, I observe. So the parents who come to me, this song you're singing, it just hits their hearts almost all the time. They're like, yes. Like, mm -hmm. I want my child to be self-sufficient, to be independent. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I want them to have some income. And also, probably some leisure, to be honest. Let's be, let's be real. The parents might not say that out loud, but they do want their child to have some leisure as an adult. I mean, they probably want them to have some disposable income, mm -hmm. right? But they also want their child, as I would just said, they want their child to thrive in a way that is beyond monetary gain. And, and there's things that you <clears throat> sacrifice for. Like, I hope my kids sacrifice to be part of a community are willing yeah. to not just like be on paper members of like these elite societies, Absolutely. but to say like, I have neighbors that I would drop everything for to help yep. out if they were experiencing a, a challenging time. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 totally, I, I think being deeply engaged in community comes at an actual financial cost. Yes. It, it really does. I mean, because you're not working eight hours a week, right? You're not able to have a job that has so flexibility that you can just drop something to help someone out. Right. Mm -hmm. But also even like, uh, being engaged in the community means that like you're present, right? I, I kind of joke around that like with students sometimes like you can't be present to bring a meal to someone if you're working all the time, mm -hmm. right? And so I do think that other schools that focus on professions, they do focus. I mean, and I think we also can't help but be shaped by who we are. So sometimes I joke around with some, with some of my really top students and they come to my office like, I think I want to get my PhD, I'm not really sure. Everyone, okay, I probably shouldn't say something, whatever, I'm gonna say on a podcast, whatever, it doesn't matter. I, I, I go, hey, you know a good trick you could get in the PhD program, see if you like it or not. After two years, if you don't like it, you could just drop out with a free master's. And they're like, what? What? I'm like, what? Of course, this assumes you get into a good program, it actually pays you, right? Mm -hmm. But they're like, wow, it's amazing. And I go, but here's the big problem. You won't be who you were at the beginning. And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, you can't escape that. You can't have two years in a PhD program that's intense socialization and expect to not be transformed by that a little bit. So like, the question is like, are you willing to play that risk? And that's a pretty high risk. Like if you're, so in other words, I, I, I kind of laugh. I'm like, if you're literally hearing me and saying, I'm going to trick the system, I'm going to get in this PhD program, do it for two years and then drop out and be the same person. That's your, your really, your, your real goal is like, it's not possible. You're not going to do that. It, it's, it's impossible. Like we are transformed by who we are. So meaning if by you go to where we are, by the, the, sorry, sorry, where we are. Yeah. Who are around, yeah, who we, where we are, by place and by community. So if, so once so we're talking to a parent, if your child goes to a school that's a pre-professional school, so I don't know, you can pick a lot of names. I don't want to pick any names. Okay, <laughs> pre-professional school A. Yeah, yeah pre-professional school A, an elite, like high brand name pre-professional school. A plus. Uh, the graduates are going into law and they're going into uh, private equity finance, right? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> They'll make probably a lot more money, but also they're going to be shaped by a community that probably has a very similar object objective function. And so don't be surprised if they become workaholics. Like, don't be surprised like money becomes part of the goal. Mm -hmm. you, get what, you get what you measure. You get what, exactly, you get what you measure, yes. And if you're measuring success by income, then you're going to be valuing income. And we, and we like want our students to become missionaries or like love people and live sacrificially. I mean, that is the Wheaton College. I mean, if you go to Wheaton College, those who've never visited here, our main hall is called Blanchard Hall. It's like this beautiful castle on the hill. It's, it's, it's amazing. Uh, but on the second floor where the administrative offices are, yeah, it's I call it the Hall of Fame. And if you walk down that hall, it's the notable missionary. So it's a noble alum, notable alum, but it's not measured by income at all. As a matter of fact, on average, they're low incomes because it's a wall of, of alum who've served in international missions for at least, what, two years? I don't know how long. I think it's a th there's some threshold. Mm -hmm. um, that's awesome. It's amazing. It's amazing. And actually, but I think it's Wheaton itself actually has many alum who've financially done very well for themselves. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But their names aren't really out there. I mean, maybe you know who they are if you want to, but like they're not in buildings, right? Mm -hmm. Like they're not there. I was gonna say too, I think that being flexible and being fluid is a huge goal of the liberal arts as well. Um, and it is valued. 
it is valued. So oh, yeah. I don't want to say too much, I guess, but like there are governmental agencies that the students I teach land in on a regular basis. I did want to say, okay, so governmental agencies, but another aspect that we didn't mention is trajectory. Like I do think a liberal arts education sets you up for a lower income right out of the gate. But it sets you up, but so like the derivative of something is how fast it's changing. Yeah. And I think that the rate of change of incomes for liberal arts graduates, I suspect, is higher. Like that, and I think there was a study on this, but I can't cite it, so I'm not going to state it. But the, the rate of increase in average incomes is higher. Oh, okay. So, uh, so yeah, I think there's a lot of dimensions that we can measure. I, I kind of don't like this, though, because that brings the focus to things that aren't actually the objective of well, exactly. That's, that's what, actually, if I, read, if I read a study that says like Libarts, Libarts graduates have less income even 20 years later, to be honest, I'm like, oh, okay, but I don't know if the Libarts education caused that, or, or if, if it's actually the goal of the humans that they exactly. There's such yeah. a selection effect there. Like, like mm -hmm. the students I observe. I mean, I teach international relations, and the students I observe, a big chunk of them, their whole goal is to end up in a nonprofit humanitarian organization. I'm sorry, but they're not going to be top 10 percent percentile income. But like, they might have a major impact on humanity. I think it'd be great. Yeah. Or it'd be wonderful. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I mean, actually, I think this is almost worth like a whole other conversation down the down the line. Okay. Maybe not right away. Because there's the a whole. For me, Tim. Well, there's a whole separate thing we, we could explore. We don't have time to explore. Uh, that's that's even like one time I, I heard someone say that um, liberal arts is the best inoculation from polarization. Okay. Yeah. And I'm like, yes, because I think it's also true too. Because like, I think well, learning yeah, so compliment. yeah, right. But learning so much about different topics, I think, makes one have to be kind of nuanced. Yeah. And so we value in the classroom, like, yeah, but what else? Like, like there's no silver bullet. There's no, there's, there's no like the binary way of thinking. I think is all is like blasted away by the liberal arts if done correctly. Like if done correctly, I think that binary thinking of like they're all bad, they're all good, or this idea is going to save everything, is like. Yeah, but what about what about this other way of thinking, mm -hmm. right? It's what about, beautiful. Yeah, yeah. It's wonderful. Yeah. All right, okay, final word. That's your final word. That's, That's final my final word. word. What's your final I word? I love it. Uh, yeah, what are you after, after with your education? Like, don't just take the status quo as what is measured is the most important thing. Like, I'm so excited for my kids to pursue an understanding of what is truly worth living for. And if they take a meandering route in terms of like average earning income potential, I am totally okay with that. Absolutely. And way more about their human formation than their than their monetary ability to earn an income formation. Yes. I mean, that's, that's, that's a value that you and I hold very highly. That's right. Yeah. So let's choose better. Go liberal arts. <laughs> choose better. Let's go liberal arts. All right. See you next time, you and I. See ya.